For scripture reading, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 15. And I will read the entire chapter. Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah to prophesy to you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that your heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are ye also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passeth into the stomach, and is expelled. But what, goes, what comes out of the mouth proceedeth from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And he went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came that, uh, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Were we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and the children. And after sending the, away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. Thank you for that reading, Brother James. I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians again as we continue our study there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading from verses 12 through 20, the last section out of chapter 6. <clears throat> as you look around the room, and I would encourage you to do so for just a moment, uh, what do you see? I see, I see people, but what I particularly see of people is bodies. Now, your body is not all you are. There is more to you than just your body. But that's what I see. And if you can humor me for just a moment with some imaginary activity here. But if we were to encounter each other without our bodies, uh, how would we know each other? How would I know you? You see, our, our bodies are so much who we are. And we have bodily features. We have certain characteristics. 
and, and they're so, so diverse and so different that even on a dark night, if you were to stand out here in the hallway and watch, say, Brother Larry walking down the sidewalk, or Brother Jerry, two of our deacons, uh, you would not confuse the two. God made them differently. And, there's so, and it's, what we're talking about specifically is their bodies. Now, Jerry's body has been under attack. He's been under the knife. And so he is more keenly aware of certain parts of his body. Uh, and maybe not, because it was hurting him for a long time before that. He was keenly aware of it then as well. But our, our bodies are really what we interact in the world with. We shake hands. We hug. We run. We eat. We smell. We taste. We hear. We see. Those are all things we do with our bodies. They're the way we interact in the world. Those of you that are married, can you imagine your marriage working well? You in your body married to a spirit. Only. Spirits don't wash dishes. Spirits don't give hugs. So our, our bodies really are are very, very, a very, very real part of who we are and how we conceive of ourselves. So because we have bodies, we can taste the delights of a char-grilled ribeye steak. We can enjoy the delights of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper washed down on a hot summer day. And by the way, if you have any extra, I could use it this afternoon. I think our house ran out. And I'm not sure how to handle a Sunday afternoon especially a hot one without a nice cold Dr. Pepper. I'm struggling with that one. Okay, we'll see if I'm addicted or not by how, how happy I am tonight when I get here, I suppose. Uh, we can sit in a concert and hear the sounds of Handel's Worthy is the Lamb. And it, it touches our souls, our spirits, but we have bodily responses to it. And we hear things like shivers up the spine. And I saw people bodily involved in creating that work of beauty. And our bodies are so deeply identified with me, me, who I am, that I can scarcely conceive of myself apart from my body. But then there's some difficulties that begin to arise. Because our bodies are such a dominant part of who we are, we become very possessive of our bodies. And that includes our tastes, our touch, what we hear, what we see. We become very sensitive to the desires of our bodies. And sometimes those des desires become dominant and they become monsters and they rule over us. Some of those bodily rulings we now call addictions. People are addicted to substances because of bodily appetites that have now risen to the prominence of ruling 
over one's mind and heart because the body demands certain things. So it shouldn't surprise us when we hear such things as, but this is my body. I can do with it what I want. No one should ever tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. If I want to use it as a billboard, who are you to say I shouldn't? If I want to display it on the beach, who are you to tell me I can't? And you have a problem with my near nudity? That's your problem. It's not mine. Who's going to tell me how to handle my body? And one of the hot buttons in our day, the issue of abortion and pregnancy. This is my body. I can do with it what I want. It's that attitude that the Apostle Paul begins to push back against in this passage. You see, this ain't nobody telling me what to do with my body is not a new modern phenomenon. It's a human condition that has been present ever since the fall. At the root of the issue in this passage today, which at the very heart, Paul makes a powerful and strong appeal to flee sexual immorality, a particular sin of the body, Paul makes a very strong case for that, but it's couched in a larger context of, so how do I understand my body? Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it an ungodly thing that I just kind of have to develop a bit of a truce with while I'm here until I finally get to heaven where all this is going to be sorted out? Or is it actually a good thing that can be something beautiful, even this side of resurrection. And I urge you to consider this, this fact. We really live in a world where everything that takes place is a part of a larger cosmic struggle. So when I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning and my body is saying, this mattress is the most wonderful thing, and Jesus is going to give us rest in heaven, so surely I should have a little bit more of it now. And yeah, there is a this big lion out there in the streets anyhow, so if I get eaten, I, want to, I need to protect my body for that, most certainly. God wouldn't want me to be devoured on the street, wouldn't want me to take too much risk with my body. And we defend our bodily laziness through that kind of stuff. Uh, we are, in fact, not just playing out my little inner struggle with myself, but we're playing out the bigger cosmic struggle for who is going to order the world in which we live. And broadly speaking, there are two simple answers to that question. One of two will ultimately rule the world in which we live, which includes your body, the tent in which you live, your house, your shell. And that is either your world is going to come under the order of the Creator God and His Redeemer Son, Jesus Christ, and you're going to submit yourself to that, body, mind, soul, spirit. Or, 
you are going to be part of what is opposing him in the world, which is the rule of Satan, the rule of darkness. And, and this, this struggle is taking place around us all the time. And we find in this passage that even the issue, even the sin of sexual immorality, he points out, has this cosmic component to it. So whether you get out of bed or not, whether you're lazy or not, whether you take the extra piece of chocolate cake or not, and you know that it would put you over the threshold of gluttony, it's not just about you and your body. It's about who is Lord of your body. And that puts this struggle in this large cosmic conflict. And I'd like for you to hear this quote. Uh, it might be a stretch. I get to read it and then reread it and ponder it. You get to hear it. Okay, so I'll let you hear it. But listen to it. Since Christ reigns, and this is from Kazemon, since Christ reigns, his own, his people, are already engaged today, delivering over to Christ by their bodily obedience the peace of the world which they are themselves. And in so doing, they bear witness to his lordship as that of the cosmocrator or world ruler and thus anticipate the ultimate future of the reality of the resurrection and the untrammeled reign of Christ. Now let me unpack that just a little bit. What Kazemann is saying is that Christ is king. He is supreme ruler in the world. And those who acknowledge him as such, or Christians, broadly speaking, are already today in the process of Jesus conquering back or restoring or winning back what has fallen, what has gone into the rule of Satan. When you become a Christian and you, in your person, body, mind, soul, spirit, bow the knee to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I'm going to order my life after you and not after the kingdom of darkness. I'm going to order my life after you. When you do that, you are already engaged in taking the created world and bringing it back into harmony with Jesus Christ and his rule. So this big cosmic struggle, Satan seems to have had the upper hand, the kingdom of darkness seems to have brought destruction and devastation throughout all God's creation. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he breaks the backbone of Satan through his death and resurrection. And now we have the assurance that when the last battle is won, it's Jesus that's going to be standing and Satan is going to be bound. And I'll tell you, in, in the course of our daily struggles, it's so easy for us to forget that. We can know with certainty and with quiet confidence that when this cosmic battle is over, it's Jesus that's going to be standing. It's Satan and all who oppose the work of Christ that are going to be on their knees. And he's going to sort them out forever. And the new heavens and the new earth will be the realm of his creation 
now where Christ reigns supremely and perfectly. And we have the privilege of being a part of that. And the first step in being a part of that is saying, me in my body today, submit myself to Jesus Christ. And suddenly the rule of Christ begins to break out in me, in my small world, in my body. And that language is used over and over and over in Scripture. That in my body, the authority and rule and goodness and holiness of God begins to break out. And the goodness of God is put on display in the world, not just in some metaphysical way, but in my body, in the flesh, in what I do with my hands, in what I hear with my ears, in the sounds I make with my mouth, in the way I love people and care for the world in which I live, in the way I practice generosity and giving, in the way I love family, in the way I love the church, in the way I love the broken people of the world, in the way I love even those who hate me and oppose me, my enemies. Jesus begins to be on display in this body. As you look around, in the bodies of all the people you see, not purely in some spiritual, ethereal, non-physical sense, but in your bodies. So here in Corinthians, in this congregational congregation riddled with divisions and almost celebrating <coughs> sins of the body, Paul says that they were almost proud of the fact that they had a man in church who was in this horrific, incestuous relationship. He says that, that's, a, that's a serious problem. He begins here, and, and we see him right on through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning to address the question of Christian liberty. And he lays out a view of Christian liberty that is anchored in the gospel, and it's an understanding that ultimately affirms, and, and I want you to get this one, it ultimately affirms that true freedom, true freedom is the ability to love what will make you ultimately happy. So if in fact you love the things now that you can love eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, when you in fact love those things now, then you're free. So true freedom is the ability to love what will make you ultimately happy. That is the Christian view of freedom. Loving, desiring, longing for, valuing, and worshiping only those things that are in full harmony with the purposes of Jesus Christ in the world. We have a hard time conceiving of ourselves that way. We have a hard time of actually thinking of ourselves in our bodies, freed from the desire for things that destroy us. Freed from the desire and longing for the stuff that kills us, that mars relationships, that destroys. But when in fact, we love only those things that make us ultimately happy, the new heavens and the new earth kind of happiness, 
then we're free. Then we're free. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, reading verses 12 through 20. And, and you'll need to note, uh, there's, there's a dialogue that's going on. It's really, it's an imaginary dialogue. And the Apostle Paul puts this idea out and then interacts with it. Puts another idea out, interacts with it. Another idea out, interacts with it. And, and this, this dialogue is taking place in the passage. A little clearer in the ESV than in some translations, but still a little difficult to catch. All things are lawful for me. First statement. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. People throughout history have been confused at times about basic anthropology, the basic makeup of the human, and the relationship of our various parts to each other. And we hear this kind of statement at times, and I think well-intended, but it represents the confusion when it's used in certain kinds of ways. We talk about someone who has just done something rather foolish or even wrong, and we might say, but they have a really good heart. And there are other means and other methods by which we hold this disjunction, we hold this disconnect between what we believe about the non-material part of a person and their bodily actions and behaviors. And the church uh, throughout history has fought against that false understanding of the human body and the human being. Because while the heart and the, the, the inner being is the source of the life, the body is also God's and needs to be ordered according to his purposes. Now the Apostle Paul uses this phrase twice, all things are lawful for me. And 
it's, it's hotly debated as to where he gets that phrase. Uh, were the Corinthians saying it? Was it one of their mantras? Was it a popularly held and widely understood philosophy of the day? Uh, was it something maybe that the Apostle Paul himself had said to the Corinthians? Because he says similar kinds of things in Romans and some of his other epistles. I don't know. Uh, and I'm not sure that we can unpack that uh, successfully. What we do know is that there is a certain truth about that statement in regards to Christian liberty. All things are lawful for me. Now, that obviously excludes unlawful things. It excludes things that by law have been clearly prescribed as evil. But what it does is chart out this pathway that really the world in which we live, God has given us all things to enjoy freely. And so we have a, a broad pasture field and wilderness area to play in. We have large cities to explore. All kinds of things, we might say, are lawful for me. They're permissible. They're useful. They're good. I have lots of options. It's like walking into uh, a, a fantastic smorgasbord. And they are of different qualities, by the way. I walked into one uh, at the invitation of a friend recently that was of a quality that I just haven't seen in my lifetime. And I've dreamed of going back to one ever since. But I'd have to drive two hours, and I think I might almost sin in the amount of money that would have to be spent for a meal. But you walk in there, and there are all kinds of opportunities to please the palate. And you really do have to stop and say, is it incredible that God made all this stuff? And then gave chefs the skill and creativity to prepare it in all these beautiful ways. That it's almost impossible to go in there and truly enjoy it without being a glutton. Almost impossible. It's possible. I, I think I should go try again. See if I can't do it next time. <laughs> <clears throat> the, the spread is phenomenal. But you know what? Not everything there is equally helpful. And so that begins to require some discernment. There were some foods on, this, on the salad bar, which is not like what we think of when we think salad bars typically. I mean, some exotic stuff, including smoked salmon on a salad bar. There are some things on that salad bar that if I were to eat them, I would be counting sheep for many hours that night because something about my body does not digest them well. And so I have to stay awake to kind of pay for what I did. So it's not helpful for me to eat some of those things. Is it lawful? Is it ungodly for me to go and eat that? No. God created it. It's good. But if I'm wise... I won't eat that. So all things are lawful for me. We have this huge smorgasbord of opportunity in the world in which we live. In that we might broadly say, I am free to participate. Go enjoy. But guess what? Not all of it is helpful. Not all of it is helpful. 
Now, this is not so much a statement of defiance, all things are lawful for me, but rather an attitude that says, I have significant freedom in the world. I have significant freedom as a Christian. But at some point in time, I must learn that the freedom is not the central component. Love must be the central component. So when I look at all the options, as a follower of Christ, I have to say, but what does it look like to love God with these options? And what does it look like to love my neighbor well in these options? And that begins to curtail my options. It trims them down. Our bodies are habit-oriented tools, vessels, creatures. Your body loves to fall into grooves and rhythms and habits. And it doesn't like to be disrupted from those habits. Just watch people who learn to sit at a certain place at the dining table. You know, it's nice not to have to have a conversation every time you come to the table. That's my chair. I just go there and I sit down. It facilitates getting with the important things. The food. So our bodies go into these habits. They go into these routines, things that we like. And it becomes very easy for those routines, those habits, those patterns to become even addictions. And those addictions to begin to curtail and trim the possibility of becoming what God actually wants me to become. Not all things are helpful. If you're going to be prepared for the opportunity that God brings into your life, there are many things that you're going to have to say no to. And if you'll permit me to reflect on Handel's Messiah again the other night with CCA. You know, one of my childhood dreams and early youth dreams would have been, would have been to be where Wendell was that Thursday and Friday night with a well-trained, well-disciplined young choir putting together an event that really was spectacular and being able to conduct that. You know the difference between me and Wendell? He has spent years in disciplined training and preparation so that when that moment presented itself, he was prepared and equipped to bring it about. I didn't. I wasn't. Now, I hope that I have prepared and become a certain kind of person so that certain opportunities will open for me or that if they do open, I, in fact, am prepared for that. But I would ask you to consider, are you eating is your body so broadly involved in the smorgasbord of life that you've not trimmed back and said, you know, this isn't helpful to the primary purpose for which I exist. I have learned to say no, to develop the disciplines and the patterns and the habits of life that equip me to be the kind of person God wants me to be so that at my moment, I'm prepared for an opportunity that only God knows will arise. Many of the great men in history 
have been those kind of men, have lived quietly in the world, but with a level of focus and discipline that has helped them in their bodies to become a certain kind of people. And when a time of crisis came, a time of opportunity came, they were equipped to stand up and walk through that door. I sat with a young entrepreneur this past week and heard him dream of an opportunity that is right at his doorstep. And you know what? Most of us would not be prepared to walk through that doorway. Why? Because we have not engaged ourselves in the disciplines that are prepared to take the specific opportunities that are now presenting themselves. And we shouldn't all be prepared for the same opportunities. But you should be preparing for the opportunities that God wants to bring your way for your moment. All things are lawful. Not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. The smorgasbord is open. But I will not be enslaved by anything. I think the key there is anything. Human beings in our bodies, in the flesh, have this slave orientation. We have this tendency toward addictions. That's part of our brokenness. That's part of our fallenness. And the worst kinds of addictions are addictions to substances, to stuff. Because what you're doing is you're taking an image-bearing image creature and a creature that bears the image of the divine and you're making it a slave to stuff, to something. And some of the popular addictions in our day, of course, are alcohol, drugs, tobacco, and I suppose there are food items that could almost come to play but substances, things that are delightful. They provide a certain bodily response. And we partake of it in such a way that our bodies have to have it. And we make ourselves slaves of that substance. Now, just, just ponder the, the irony of this. A creature made in the image of God, chained to a substance. Chained to a substance. With all the creative power and imagination of a God image bearing creature. Chained and ruled by a substance. Slavery. Tragic. And yet, in our flesh, that's who we tend to become. Look around us in the world. Look at the struggles of your own heart and mind and body. Our bodies in the fallen state naturally take on the authority of kingship. So I encourage you to watch our culture from this perspective and see if this isn't true. That our culture, apart from Christ, is driven and shaped by 
bodily appetites that are now dominant. So the, the mad quest for wealth, the desire for luxury, providing comfort for my body, the desire for foods, for substances, to hear certain things, to see certain things, to smell certain things. And people do all kinds of inhuman, ungodly things because their bodies are king. Their senses have exercised an iron rule over their lives. They can't be happy. They can't be joyful. They can't be cheerful. They can't be, have a sense of well-being unless certain bodily things are a certain kind of way. So stuff has become the master. The bodies have become king. Christianity turns that right upside down and says, you know what, the body's a great thing. In fact, Jesus even had one. It's good enough that Jesus took one on. But its place is as a servant. As a slave, not to stuff, but to Christ. And when Christ rules over the body, through the human mind and spirit, over the body, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see the purposes of Christ fleshed out through human hands and human actions in the world. All things are lawful for me. There's a huge smorgasbord out there. Do not let yourself become a slave of things. Don't let yourself become a slave of anything. And the punchline here leads into the next one. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord. While the body is meant for food in one sense, it's not meant for food ultimately. It's meant for the Lord. And only the body that is now possessed by the Lord accomplishes the purposes of Christ in the world. And as he establishes that reality, he then makes three strong arguments for sexual purity against sexual immorality. And each of these three begin with, do you not know? He's assuming common knowledge, already understood, already embraced. And these arguments are not so much now about the community of faith. He said earlier that sexual immorality has implications for the community of faith. He's saying it has very personal, individual implications for one's own self and their union with Christ. So the first one, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So think of your body in this way. I have this body. I have committed my heart, my body, my soul, myself. I myself have surrendered to Jesus Christ. And as we understand the gospel, that Christ actually takes possession of me which includes my body. So he says, if you practice sexual immorality, what you are doing is taking these members that are Christ's and taking them across the battle line into the other side and putting them to work for the kingdom of darkness. So in a military scenario, America, World War II, America at war against Germany, it's like one of the American generals taking the battle plan for D-Day 
carrying that across the channel, going finding Hitler, and giving him the battle plan. It's taking the resources of the kingdom of Christ, the members of Jesus, carrying them across the battle line and giving them up to the other side. It's about taking the resources and tools of Christ who will ultimately triumph, taking them across the battle line and giving them to Satan who will ultimately be defeated. And the specific image here is of a prostitute. And he provokes this emphatic response. Never! Never! No! Don't do that! Sexual immorality is that kind of compromise. Your bodies, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The second one, do you not know that sexual immorality constitutes a one-flesh union. It's more than just a fling. For a Christian, this means that I am committed to Christ. That means I am now united to Christ. I belong to Christ. I am Christ's. He is mine. Christ is in me. This, this union with Christ is very fundamental to who we are as Christians. We're not a collection of dismembered, disjointed parts. We're a person. And the argument here is specifically, we have become one spirit with Christ. So at the very deepest level of who we are, we are Christ's. And when sexual immorality takes place, we're taking Christ, whom we're united with, and becoming one flesh with the other side with all that opposes the kingdom of Christ and he's saying just because it's outside marriage just because it's with an ungodly person just because it's with someone who professionally plies their body for money does not minimize or change that reality when a child of God practices sexual immorality in this specific case with a prostitute he is uniting Christ to his opposition. And this provokes an emphatic response. Flee sexual immorality. Run away. Go. It's not merely a sin committed outside the body. It's committed against one's own body. Against Christ. Against one's own body. You see, this is not, in his first line, this is not helpful. This will not help you be and become and do what God wants you to be, become and do. You have to run away. And the third, do you not know that your bodies are the temple, they're the shrine of the Holy Spirit? And this is the first time here in Corinthians that he's applying this now to the individual. He's referenced it earlier to the entire church. Now he says individually, you, in your person, your body, is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And the residence of the Holy Spirit brings the stamp that I belong to God. You're saying, 
I belong to God. And I'm giving myself up into a one union, a one flesh union in this way. He says, no. If you belong to Christ, Christ has full authority and full property rights over you. That includes your body. It's Jesus' body. It belongs to him. You have been purchased. He bought you. You belong to him. And he concludes with what I call this vision of beauty. A body, a human body, that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, where the habits, the actions, the behaviors of the body, including both the abstinences and the practices, are all training toward one end. And that end is the glory of God. That person, that body, is free. That's the picture of true freedom. And it's abundantly clear that sexual immorality cannot be a part of that life. The charge is to flee from that. It is not just less helpful, it is the least helpful. It is the most destructive. It is the most subversive to your own self. Rather, a gospel-ordered life where not only God has purchased you through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, not only has God bought you, but you are implementing in the body those personal limitations and restrictions, those selective choosing out of the smorgasbord of life that will help you to grow to become the kind of man, the kind of woman that God wants you to be so that you can fulfill his purpose for you when the opportunity comes. The body is surrendered to the direction of God. And it's brought into subjection. It's being trained in godliness. And the Apostle Paul later will take some, make some very strong statements on this. He says, my body's not happy about this a lot of the time. But I am so committed to being the apostle of God that does not have the kind of impediments that so many people have that I discipline my body. I bring it under. I exercise strong authority. And I can't help but flip to this passage. One of the great freedoms that he got because of that was, he said, I have learned in whatever state or condition or situation I'm in to be content. I have to say, I'm not there yet. So he could sleep on a hard floor or in a king's palace, be equally content. He could eat a bowl of rice, plain rice with his fingers, or sit at the king's palace and around a fantastic feast. Enjoy it be equally content in both places. You see, his body was a servant. It was not king. And you don't just get there automatically. You recognize that all things are lawful, they're not all helpful. All things are lawful, but they're not all profitable. And I'm willing to have my body be under the authority of Christ 
directed and governed by him. So when our bodies are under subjection to Christ, being trained in godliness, the glory of God is increasingly being seen in something as weak, fragile, vulnerable, and susceptible to addictions as our human bodies. Ask yourself the question, what is helpful? What is non-enslaving? And what will glorify God? And when your answers to those questions are actually being embodied, actually being lived out, actually being demonstrated day by day by day in the course of your life, then you, in fact, are a free person. And the glory of God is on display in your life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, these bodies of ours in the fall have taken a voice that is much, much larger, much louder, and much more insistent than we on our own can handle. It is you, by your grace, through the cross of Jesus Christ, by which we can have this reordered. And Lord, you know the hearts and lives of every one of us here deeply. You know the places of our deepest struggle. And we ask that today we could have a fresh vision of how the cross of Jesus Christ is the means by which our bodies can be subjected to the authority and rule of Christ. Make that more effective in our lives so that even in our frail jars of clay, the glory of Christ can be seen as he exercised lordship, a lordship that brings wholeness and beauty and purpose and a well-ordered life and puts it on display as a product of his grace. Lord, in those areas in which we're failing, we ask your forgiveness. Set us free from our entanglements, our enslavements. Set us free to love you first and our neighbor second. We ask this in Jesus' name.